Welcome to One Chapel. We're a family of neighborhood churches in the Austin area. Our vision is to help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. It's a place to connect, grow, and serve the communities where we live. You can learn more about One Chapel and how to get involved at onechapel.com. And now, here's this week's message. You felt like you didn't belong. Does something pop into your mind right away? Think back to a time where you felt like you weren't supposed to be somewhere. You didn't feel like you fit in. You feel like there was criticism or judgment coming towards you and it didn't feel right. Think back to a time. For some of you, it probably happened in middle school because middle school is hard and those middle school kids are crazy and those are really difficult and challenging years for most people. Uh, maybe it was um, in high school and that feeling when you walk into the cafeteria and you don't know what table you should sit at and are you going to be rejected at this one? Or, and you kind of feel like everybody's just looking at you, but the reality was they were all actually looking at themselves and they didn't even notice you. But you don't feel like that. You feel like everybody's judging you and looking down on you. When I uh, was in high school, actually, I was in ninth grade, I moved to Canada for a little while. My family moved to Canada and we lived in Vancouver, BC. I went to this other country and I definitely felt like I did not belong there. My dad put me in this Canadian school and, and I just didn't fit. I mean, these people are crazy. Like everywhere I went, they just said really weird stuff all the time. Like I, 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 say, I say tacos. Like if I, I want to go out, I, I like to eat tacos, right? I want to eat some tacos. And they, what do they say? They say tacos. <laughs> tacos. Who says this? You can't go out and eat tacos. That doesn't make sense. They actually said nachos. I'm not kidding. They said, let's go have some nachos at the restaurant. No, I actually heard one person say, hey, would you like to go to the spa? What's a spa? What in the world is happening up there? And everything, of course, ends with A, and it's just very confusing place. So I'm in this school, and every morning, they're, they're, they're saying the Canadian Pledge of Allegiance, pledging to the Canadian flag. And so I'm standing there, and all these people, I am in a foreign land, and I do not belong. Why? Because my allegiance is to the red, white, and blue. Actually, my allegiance is to Texas. <laughs> my real allegiance is to Jesus, actually, but, 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 but I think you get the point. Uh, man, and there's just those moments in life. Well, today, I, I want to talk about one of those stories from the scriptures where a woman shows up to a dinner party and she doesn't belong, and judgment ensues, and what does Jesus have to say about this? Most of you, if you've been around, you know we're in this series. We're calling it At the Table. And we've been camped out on this verse in Luke chapter 7, verse 34. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton, a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. For most of us, it just goes over our head. We don't even think about reading that in the Scripture. But why is it in there? Why is it so noteworthy and mentioned in the Scriptures? And one of the reasons that meals, or this sentence doesn't impact us very much is because meals just meant way more in Jesus' day than they do in ours. We've lost the power and the impact of it in our 
driven fast food culture. And so we've lost the reality that meals can be powerful to bring people together or in many ways to separate and, and tear people apart. We talked a lot about that a lot over the past weeks. You can go back and catch up on the podcast if you missed it. So our focus has been on this practice of eating and drinking and the fact that it wasn't a side point for Jesus. It wasn't just something that, that he did because he had to survive being fully God and fully man. This was actually central to everything that Jesus was doing. So we've been reading Luke chapter 19, verse 10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That was Jesus' mission here on the earth. Luke 7, 34, though, a little before that says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And we believe this was actually Jesus' method. This is the way that he did the seeking and the saving. So in a culture where people were hostile to Jesus, where they kept him at arm's length, where they didn't always want everything that he was offering, how did Jesus walk people into the kingdom of God? And the answer is one meal at a time. Over and over and over again, he did this. So through the series, we've been asking the question, how do we do it? How do we invite people into the kingdom of God when there's hostility in the culture that we live in? When it's not PC, it's not politically correct to believe what you believe or to say what you wanna say. And oftentimes you just feel like you're the weirdo at work with the strange beliefs that nobody gets. To answer that question, we've looked at these different times that Jesus sat down and he ate a meal with all sorts of people who in that culture were considered untouchable. So today we're going to look at this story. He's sitting down to, to a meal with a religious leader when a woman shows up who doesn't really belong. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Afterward, a Jewish religious leader named Simon asked Jesus to his home for dinner. And Jesus accepted the invitation. I think that's awesome. When he went to Simon's home, he took his place at the table. In the neighborhood, there was an immoral woman of the streets, known to all to be a prostitute. When she heard about Jesus being in Simon's house, she took an exquisite flask made from alabaster, filled it with the most expensive perfume, went right into the home of the Jewish religious leader, and knelt at the feet of Jesus in front of all the guests. You see the scene. Like, this is already, this is, this is nuts what's happening here. Broken and weeping, she covered his feet with the tears that fell from her face. She kept crying and drying his feet with her long hair. And over and over, she kissed Jesus' feet. Then she opened her flask and anointed his feet with her costly perfume as an act of worship. Hold up, everybody. This scene is wild. You read it a lot as you're going. If you've been in church for a while, you've heard the story. But if you don't really camp out at the scene, you kind of lose the power of it. This is crazy. We don't exactly know the details of her life. This translation says she's most likely a prostitute and she was known to be that. So just think for her, how much courage it must have taken for her to show up there. Imagine her getting ready to walk into that house, what she must have gone through. She lives in this male-dominated patriarchal society. And if you're living the life that she's living, you do not go to the Pharisee's house. You will not be well-received there. And so she decides to go. Now, some scholars argue that this woman, all she's doing, she's just trying to relate to Jesus the only way she really knows how to relate to men. Like she's just doing the things that she knows to do. But in that culture, you never lower your hair in public. You don't do the things that she's doing, not ever. So this is messy. And everybody's like, oh man. Like can you imagine being there at the table? Okay, all right, this is not good. This should not be happening. What is going on here at dinner? They're thinking 
this shouldn't be. Like, this breaks all the social rules. This breaks all the religious rules, not to mention just proper etiquette. Like, this is wrong. And if we're honest, for most of us, you read this, and if you really think about it, it makes us a little uncomfortable too. I mean, hey, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. You don't, you don't act that way around Jesus. You don't spaz out and cry all over the place and wipe his feet with you. You don't do these kinds of things. It's not respectable. You're not supposed to do it. It's not appropriate behavior. When you're around Jesus, you have to say, glory be to God, hallelujah, bless Jesus. So good to see you, brother, sister, so nice. That's what you do when you're around Jesus, right? So you pull this forward a little bit in our culture today and it might come out like this, but this is church. Like this is church, You, you can't wear that to church. You can't, you, you shouldn't be here. We do not behave like that in church. Like when I was a kid, there, there were a couple cardinal sins. You did not wear short pants to church, uh-uh. And you did not run in the church. You run in the church and pretty much the floor is gonna open up and you're going straight to, well, you know where. I mean, that's essentially what it was like. Now, actually, I believe in honoring those who are older and more mature, and I believe in honoring places and all of that. But you know what? We're the church, not a building. And I actually think that Jesus would have said, ha, 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 look at that guy. He's awesome. That's what I think. <laughs> but if you don't want your kids to run, you can still tell them that, but whatever. <laughs> but when I see him in the hallway, I'm going to say, yeah, go beat that kid. All right. Uh, You can't do that. We're a little more refined around here. There are rules to being a Christian. There's etiquette to being religious. You have to do certain things if you're going to be a Christian. It reminds me of this meme that keeps popping up in my feed over and over and over again. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you shouldn't wear ripped jeans to church. Maybe you should look up at Jesus and not up and down at my outfit, Carol. (laughs) I love that Thor face, by the way. (laughs) But you laugh at that because you know that's, that's the way it goes a lot of times. People show up and they're looked at with judgment and criticism. Jesus' response to this woman is so different. Chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 39. When Simon saw what was happening, he thought, this man, he can't be a true prophet. If he really was a true prophet, he would know what kind of sinful woman is touching him. So he, Simon, he's checking Jesus out. He's trying to figure out who this guy is. And now he's thinking, oh, it's fake. Everything that people said about him, it's not true. He's not a prophet. He's not a teacher. He doesn't know. Because if he was... He would say no to this woman and he would get her out of here. Jesus said, Simon, I got a word for you. Now, in other translations, it's really fun because actually it's just Simon thinking about this. He doesn't say anything out loud. And so Jesus, in response to Simon's thoughts about how he's not a prophet, he he goes into a story to emphasize a point. Classic Jesus. Simon, I got a word for you. Go ahead, teacher. I want to hear it. It's a story about two men who were deeply in debt. One owed the bank $100,000 and the other only owed $10,000. When it was obvious that neither of them would be able to repay their debts, the kind banker graciously wrote off the debts and forgave them all that they owed. Tell me, Simon, which of the two debtors would be the most thankful? Which one would love the banker most? And Simon answered, I suppose it would be the one with the greatest debt forgiven. You're right, Jesus agreed. Then he spoke to Simon about the woman still weeping at his feet. Don't you see this woman kneeling here? She's doing for me what you didn't bother to do. When I entered your home as your guest, you didn't think about offering me water to wash the dust off my feet. Yet she came into your home and washed my feet with her many tears and then dried my feet with her hair. You didn't even welcome me into your home with the customary kiss of greeting. But from the moment I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. 
You didn't take the time to anoint my head with fragrant oil, but she anointed my head and feet with the finest perfume. She has been forgiven of all her many sins. This is why she has shown me such extravagant love. But those who assume they have very little to be forgiven will love me very little. Straight to the heart. Then Jesus said to the woman at his feet, all your sins are forgiven. All the dinner guests said among themselves, who is the one who can even forgive sins? Then Jesus said to the woman, your faith in me has given you life. Now you may leave and walk in the ways of peace. When you read the story, you tend to think about all the stuff that the woman did for Jesus, and rightly so. And in fact, we will. We'll end today by talking a little bit about her and remembering her. But what about this religious leader, Simon? What about him? What can we learn from him in his response? I mean, this God-loving, church-going, religious expert of the law, this guy sitting there with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Messiah is at his table, and he totally missed it. He totally missed out on everything here. And it almost seems like Jesus was going to let it go. Like he wouldn't have said anything, but, but, but Simon, he obviously, he can, he's obviously passing judgment. He's obviously showing his disapproval of this woman. So where did Simon really miss it? Well, I think there's a few things there in your notes. I think that Simon, he didn't realize how much he had been forgiven. He didn't see it. Why? Because he was too busy looking at the sins of that woman. He was too busy thinking about how wrong she was, how dirty she was, how inappropriate this was. And he wasn't able to take a look inside at himself because all of his focus was on her. And he didn't realize that he too was broken. He too had some issues. He too was falling short. He didn't realize it. He forgot. He wasn't paying attention. His focus was somewhere else. I think then he didn't see Jesus for who he really was. We read it. He said, oh, this guy, he couldn't be a prophet. There's no way because he would know what kind of woman this is. But for Jesus, he knew exactly what kind of woman this was. And he said, oh, I got a rescue plan for you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to set you free. He had the Messiah sitting at his table and he missed out. He didn't see Jesus for who he really was. And because of those things, Simon then disregarded every act of common and thoughtful hospitality. He lost sight of who Jesus really is and what he does, which means that he lost sight of the life of hospitality that Jesus offers to all of us where we're invited to come to the table. Do you see it? He lost sight of all of that. That's why Jesus says, you didn't offer me water for my feet. You didn't give me a customary greeting. And that's what everybody did. You didn't even do that. He lost sight of the table. And that's what happens when we start to look not at the table, not at Jesus, but to see other people. Simon was so concerned with religious appearance and his own honor that he missed Jesus being in, in his house and he lost sight of the table. And I think it's so interesting because it highlights this danger that I believe that all of us, regardless of how long we've been following Jesus, we can fall into it. Even in our pursuit of God, we can miss people. Even in our pursuit of everything that's holy and right and good and, and really wanting to please him, we can lose sight of the people that he loves, the ones that really move his heart. And what happens is we, st we start to see the mess more than we see the people. You look at somebody, they walk in the door, and you see the mess on them. I know what you did on the weekend. What do you think you're doing here? Tisk, tisk, tisk. Now, we all laugh, but we've all had those moments. 
We see the mess more than we see the people. So listen, when we read Luke chapter 7, verse 34, it says, here is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That doesn't really impact us very much. You don't think about the worst of the worst, but for these Jews at this time in this culture, that's exactly what those words meant. Jesus is hanging out with the worst of the worst. So I want you to do an experiment with me. I want you to think about it for a second. What if you heard a story about Jesus sitting down and eating dinner with a pedophile. What does that do in your heart and mind? If you heard a story about Jesus sitting down for lunch with a, with a white nationalist, a guy who marched in Charlottesville a while back, what does that do to you? What do you think about? What do you think about if you, you saw a video of Jesus sitting in a cave around a fire, eating a meal, enjoying a meal with an ISIS terrorist in Afghanistan. Now, what happens to you when you start to think about that kind of stuff? Does it make you nervous? Do you get a little confused? Are you angry? What does that, what does that thought experiment do in your mind and in your heart? This is exactly how these people felt in that day with tax collectors and sinners. This is exactly how all of them felt looking at this story, watching this woman. But when Jesus said that he came to seek and to save the lost, he meant everybody. Everybody is included. And you know what that means? That means it's going to get messy. It just is. It's not always going to be clean and right and perfect. It's not always going to be how we want it. It's going to be messy. Why? Because we are all messy. People carry abusive relationships and addictions and sin issues. We're liars. We're cheaters. We're, we're prone to stray and wander. All of us have these kinds of issues, which means when you come to the table and Jesus invites you and everybody else to come, you bring all that with you to the table. And Jesus just says, come, come. You're welcome, even with all that stuff. And that messes with our religious sensibilities. Oh, I don't, I mean, I know that I am welcome at the table, but is he really? I know that I get to come. I mean, obviously, I, I'm not that bad of a person, but she, I know what she's doing. It messes with our religious sensibilities. And if we're honest, I think it's easy to fall into the same trap that Simon the Pharisee fell into. This messy, out of line prostitute interrupted my time with Jesus. And that religious judgment creeps in. And so I think we need to turn and we need to face it. We need to stare it down and remember Jesus' invitation to all of us first. It's so easy for us to get into our own religious boxes and then try to fit God and the church into our own experience. It needs to be this way. And we lose touch with God's welcome extended to everybody at the table. I think it's really easy to do. Let me explain it to you for a second. You know, we've been talking about how from Jesus all the way to the Apostle Paul, that these New Testament believers, these followers of Jesus, they're eating and drinking where? Around a table, in a home, as a family. This is what they're all doing. And the New Testament, it tells the story of how the church grows from like a dozen people sitting around a table with Jesus, spilling out into the streets of Jerusalem, and then extending out all throughout the Roman Empire. And, and then into this today, this historic global movement with over two billion people that you and me are a part of living and breathing today, right now. But the New Testament just tells the story of the first two decades of that story. So people much smarter than me are telling that story in different ways. And one of the ways they tell the story is through architecture. Architecture? Yes, architecture. 
through architecture. And so I just want to hang with me here. We'll try to do this quickly. But, but I just want to, depending on how you break it down, there have been four or so major stages of church architecture over the past 2,000 years. Now, some of you who don't like school, you're already checking out. Come back. Come back to me. All right? Hang on. Each of these corresponding, each of those correspond to a stage of church history. So really quick, the first was the home, right? They don't have any money. This is, this is right when the church is being launched. They don't have money. Buildings are not an option. They're not going to build something. They're not going to go somewhere else. They're just meeting in homes. Their faith is illegal. The government is trying to track them down and in some cases persecute and kill them. And so what are they going to do? They're just going to meet at homes, And so what does that mean? It means that the center of gravity in this stage of church life, it's just the table. Everything they're doing, they're just gathering around the table. And in spite of the laws, Christianity continues to grow. It continues to flourish and move forward. And so then they start building things called cathedrals. They start building cathedrals, start moving out and building cathedrals. And I've got some examples here that maybe you'll recognize. They they had different different, different, uh, stages and phases, like the Romanesque period. Some of you might, you might recognize the Gothic period, like Notre Dame. Of course, it's so, fat, so sad with the fire here this year. You might recognize the Baroque period in, in, in Italy. They have these different looks, these different styles, but they're meeting together in these cathedrals, and the center of gravity moves. Moves. It's no longer the table. It actually moves to the altar in the center of that cathedral. And if you've been into those cathedrals in Europe, you'll know like the sound just bounces off everywhere and it sounds pretty amazing, but it's really hard to hear anything. And so teaching and training and instruction, it wasn't a big deal in this phase of the church. In fact, the mass is just happening in Latin, which nobody spoke. Church was loads of fun. Nobody understands anything. And the altar becomes the center of gravity. Then the 16th century happens, the Protestant Reformation, the church kind of comes back to the Bible, right? They're moving back to the Bible, but if you want to hear the Bible, you've got to go to church because nobody's got their own. This is before the printing press, and so nobody has their own copy, and so the architecture starts evolving again. And now you move into the third stage, which would kind of be the colonial stage, kind of a colonial box. It kind of looked like this here, a colonial box. And essentially what this was for, this was just like a preaching box, that's it. Big square, little stage, so that you can listen to me yell at you. That's what I'm talking about. I don't know why we don't go back to this. You know, this is, this was ep- this is awesome. This is where we should be. <laughs> so you've got this colonial box, and it doubles as a community center. But then the center of gravity then, because of the shift, it moves again. So the center of gravity was the table, then it was the altar, and now it moves to the pulpit. The pulpit kind of becomes the main thing in the church. There's a redesign. The pulpit is in the center. Then around the turn of the last century, there's a rise in entertainment and TV and film and movies and music. And so people, there's urbanization and all this stuff is happening in our culture and music starts to play a larger role in the church in the West. Now music was always a thing. Singing and worship was always a part of even before Jesus' time. So I'm not saying that, but but I'm talking about the kind of music, like a pipe organ. You ever been to one of those churches? A pipe organ and a big choir singing. Actually, it's beautiful. It's awesome. It's really, really fun. Uh, but we tend to look at that kind of stuff when we go, oh, yeah, it's so old school. It's kind of lame. It's kind of old school, the pipe organ, the choir, yeah, whatever. We've moved beyond that. But actually, actually, these are relatively new things in the history of the church. So in addition to all these cultural changes, Protestants, they start to spend more money on church buildings, and that kind of brings us into the, the fourth stage, which is the theater. 
I don't mean a literal theater like the one we're in today, but this is really fun too. I just mean like the theaters that you'll kind of see if you go to a mega church around the country or, or most churches today, really. You enter in and it looks like a theater. There's a stage that's lifted up. The whole thing is designed so that they can project music and sound. And, and so the center of gravity moves again. Remember? Table, altar, pulpit, and now it moves to the stage. The stage. So there's a team of people, and Saul and team are leading you in worship, and, and I'm speaking, and Annette's kind of leading you through the creed, and people are exercising their gifts, and all this stuff, and this is still the dominant style today. Brent, I'm bored! Can we move on from the architecture? Okay, fine. But what's the point that I'm trying to make here? There are things that we do in the modern church today that we just assume they're normal, like this theater style. Hundreds of people today just, just watching and, and look, look, looking up front and listening to a preacher. But these were not always normal. And I'm not trying to moralize any one of the phases here, by the way. I, I think that it's, this is not necessarily a bad thing. But I think that it's telling. The point is, it's telling that the original architecture of the church, at least in the fourth century, and then, uh, and then uh, far beyond that in parts of Europe and still today in places like China where the gospel is illegal, listen to me, the original architecture of the church was a table in a home and that says something about what church is at its core, about who we are as the church at our core. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty three. so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, do you know what he's talking about? He's talking about their main gathering, like the Sunday service. That's what he's referring to. Not that, hey, get together for the main event and then we'll have some food. No, the meal was actually the main event. So notice what he doesn't say in that verse. He doesn't say, when you come together, to sing. When you come together to hear Pastor Brent talk to you. What he says is, when you come together, to eat. And actually, the original apprentice of Jesus, they had a name for this gathering, and they called it the love feast. That's like the coolest, most 60s, like hippie, awesome thing to call it ever. I think it's amazing. In the Greek, it's the agape feast. And there's a bishop in the second century named Tertullian, and I won't read you what he said, but he describes how important and what this gathering was like. Now stay with me. Their main Sunday gathering, this is what it was like. You get together. You pray. You eat a meal like you just feast together. And then you each stand up in turn and you sing a song. We're totally doing this next week, by the way. I, we're, bringing, we're bringing this back because this is going to be so incredible. So like, so like Veronica, next week, what, Hillsong? You stand up and sing a Hillsong. Stand up as Bethel, maybe a, or, or you can actually, Bethel. more Bethel. Okay, so you can think about it, but, but, or maybe an original. You can stand up and just sing an original. Now just imagine sitting in that service and somebody stands up to sing an original song. If you ever watched The Voice or American Idol, you know that's always a bad decision. But not here, because it's everything that's inside of them and coming out. It's this beautiful gathering of people where the Spirit of God is. Now, then you pray again, and that's pretty much it. Now, we have other writings about teaching and prophecy and healing, so there's much more, of course. But the point is this. This is it. The love feast, this was church. You get together, you have a feast, this is church. So what does this say about our modern-day culture a modern-day church where we call and we, we treat our weekly Sunday gatherings, we call it a service. Like it's the pastor's job to come and to 
provide goods and services to you, the religious consumer, rather than a love feast where we all show up together, we all worship together, we feast on things together, we enjoy life together. And not only that, we believe that Jesus is in our midst and we welcome everybody who's on the margins, who's on the outside. This is what church was and still must be. I'm not trying to moralize it and say, oh, you shouldn't have moved those centers of gravity. But what I am saying is, regardless, here in 2019 in our culture, we have to make sure that the center of gravity is Jesus and the table. It can't be this. It can't be the pulpit. Weird mic stands with iPads. It can't be any of this. It's got to stay Jesus and the table. This is central to our apprenticeship to Jesus, but we lose it. We've lost it through the millennia. I'm afraid that maybe with our technology and, and our lights and sound and, and our impressive church buildings, or if you're a one chapel uh, goer, our semi-impressive church buildings, but you, you, Liberty Hill's gonna be sweet though. So you, you, in all of this stuff, guess what's happened? We've still watched our culture in the West slide and move away from Jesus, even with all of our cool stuff. Leonard Sweet, in his book, From Table to Tablet, he says this, and this is really the point. An untabled faith is an unstable faith. Do you hear it? An untabled faith. This is what happened to Simon. Simon the Pharisee, his faith was untabled. He lost sight of it. He couldn't see it anymore. An untabled faith is an unstable faith. A neglect of the table in our churches is echoed in our families and communities. You see the breakdown as we get further and further and further away from the table. An untabled faith is an unstable faith. And I just think this is pretty true. And we tend to drift just like Simon had drifted. So many people, including some of us here today, we have a we have an untabled faith. We lost sight of the original architecture and purpose. Our faith is untabled and we have to regain it. So we don't eat and drink with other followers of Jesus as a core practice of our lives. We don't sit and eat with others and, and invite people who are on the margins. We don't find ourselves sitting at tables across from people with, that are on the margin and they're untouchable where people, any respectable person would walk by and go, why are they at dinner with It's not core and common. It's not our core practice. But I'm telling you, this is what Jesus has called us to. And it's the kind of practice that we want to have here. It's got to return. We've got to return to Jesus and his invitation to the table and avoid the trap that Simon fell into. So we've talked about Simon and his response and his, his shortcomings. He, he forgot how much he'd been forgiven. He, he didn't see who Jesus really was. He ignored hospitality that we're all called to live. Jesus, we've seen his response to this woman and to Simon. But I want to talk as we close about the woman's response to Jesus. You guys can come on up. We're doing things a little bit differently today, and we're, we're doing them so that we can enter back into a time of worship together. So don't get too comfy. We're going to enter back into a time of worship together as our response, because I believe that the woman's response shows us the way that we need to respond to Jesus if we're to keep our faith centered around Jesus and his table. You understand, when we keep saying at the table, that's what we're saying. Your invitation to Jesus. 
to his body broken for you, for his blood shed for you. It's what we've all been welcomed into, and we have to stay there. And not just for you and me who are pretty good people, but for the people out there far from God who people would say, oh, that'll never happen. People on the margins. And so I think this woman, she gives us the response that we have to have. And so if you want to write these down, you can. They're in your notes. Or if you just want to put it away and just listen, I just want you to pause for a minute and I want you to think, do I respond to Jesus and his invitation to me in this way? Does my life look like hers? In my response and all my mess and all my stuff and all my issues, and I promise you, you got them. And if you don't think you got them, well, guess what? Those are your issues. And I can bring all my stuff to him. And people around me go, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. Why are you here? I know what you're like. Jesus is never going to. And Jesus says, no, don't listen to any of them. I'll take care of them. In fact, I'm going to come to your defense. I love how you're responding to me. Your sins are forgiven. Go and find life. So I think those responses, there's four of them, just briefly. The first was that she was purposeful. She showed up to Jesus, she had a purpose. Don't you think it's so easy for us to show up on a Sunday morning and just not have any purpose? We have no sense of, I'm going to meet with God. I'm going to gather with the body of believers. I've been welcomed to the table and I'm gonna find life and healing and strength and the power of the Holy Spirit to live the life that I'm called to. I'm going to find that when I gather with my brothers and sisters. Instead, we show up on a Sunday and we kind of bring the change. Uh, Yeah, I got a little bit left from the week, God. You know, it's been rough. I'm tired. No sense of purpose, no faith, no belief that we're actually going to meet and receive. She didn't do that. She showed up with purpose. She gathered all of her stuff and said, oh, I'm going to meet him and I'm going to get something. She was personal. It's the second one. She showed up and she was personal. She, she gathered what was most important to her, the very substance of her life. This is probably what she was living on, this perfume. So she gathered it and she brought it to him. Jesus, I don't have a lot, but I, what I have, I'm gonna give to you. This is, this is for me to you. And it's me. It's so easy for us to rely on me. Sunday morning gatherings, podcasts during the week of preachers that we like. Saul leading us in worship. And that that relationship with Jesus, it doesn't really become our own. It's not personal. But I just want you to realize songs aren't worship. You are worship. Even with all of your mess, even with all of your stuff, you're still welcome to come. The third thing is, she was passionate. Is your worship passionate? Is your life with God, is it passionate? I mean, you read the story with me. There's tears and hair and kisses and oil. Like, it's crazy. So people are like, what is she doing? Why is she doing this? This is inappropriate. I believe that our response to everything that God has done for us should cause people to kind of go, is that inappropriate? Like, that guy's like, whoa, God. That dude's in church, he's just crying his eyes out. That guy, 
I've, I've heard him in his room in his quiet time of the day, and he's just bawling. What's wrong with that guy? Oh, he's been changed and transformed, and he has a passionate love for Jesus. But instead, we come in and kind of go, that's all I got. But you're awesome. You're good. You're good. You're good. I'm not trying to get you to do something that's totally out of your comfort zone. I'm just trying to point out to you, listen, something happens when you obey the scriptures and raise your hand and shout and sing and bow. There's a, there's a spiritual response to that physical thing that you're doing. It just happens, and you should try it. And the final thing is, her gift was priceless. What she brought was priceless. It cost her everything. And you know what? She didn't hold any of it back. She broke that thing open, many scholars think, had to break that thing open to get the oil out, to pour onto Jesus. So she breaks it. There's nothing left for her. She gave it all. She left everything on the floor there. Nothing held in reserve. And I just think that's the kind of life that we've been called to. I'm not going to hold back. I'm not going to keep secrets. I'm not going to try to do every day just what I want. I want to do what you want me to do, God. I want to lay it all on the floor. I want to give it all away. When I come in here and worship with you, I don't want to leave having, oh, I got lots of energy. Why? Because I took a nap when that dude was talking. I'm, I'm not mad at those of you that have been napping. It's fine. I do see you, though. I, <laughs> I'm not mad. I'm glad you're here. Why do you think I yell all the time? No, it's, it's priceless. I, I, I'm t- I, le- I leave my time with, I'm tired. I'm tired. Why? Because I'm going to give it all. There's nothing held back. Why? Because you gave everything to me. And I just want to live in a church where we respond to Jesus like she did. Where we come with purpose. Where it's personal for me. Where we respond with passion because you're so good. And where it's priceless. Where it's just, I'm going to give it all away to you. So would you stand up with me and I just... I just, if you would, if you're willing, I just, as we go into these couple songs here, we'll receive communion at the end. I just, would you just practice with me? Would you maybe just open up? I know this is outside of the comfort zone for some of you. You're like, oh, that guy's crying. Oh, how inappropriate. Exactly. He's so good and he has such a life for you. I just want to be in a church where we respond this way. So let's just practice. Just take a step. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you? What's the step you need to take today? Do you need to release your judgment of other people? Do it. Pray about it as we worship. Do you need to respond with purpose? God, I want to really approach you with a purpose. Then do that today. Do you, need to, do, you, do you need it to be priceless? Do you need to work on just giving it all away because you're too withheld? Do you need passion? What is it today that you need? Do you need to make it personal and where it's not just the songs up here, but it's you? Try, take a step forward today as we worship God. See what he does. He responded to her. He'll respond to you the same way, even if you're a mess. Our prayer team is going to be here in the middle aisle, and they would love to pray with you about any stuff that's come up in your heart today. They're there, and it will make their day to pray with you about any issue, big or small. So Jesus, we love you, and we want to worship you. Today we're surrendering, and we want to give our all. Would you receive this praise, this honor, this glory, this worship in Jesus' name? Come on, let's worship God together. Thanks for joining us today. If God is doing something in your life or you're looking for ways to get connected, you can learn about groups, teams, and more at onechapel.com welcome. 
You can subscribe to future messages from One Chapel on your favorite podcast player. And of course, you're always invited to services every Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11.30. See you next time.
If you would, I just want you to stay in kind of this spirit and attitude of worship. And as we continue to worship here with this song, we're going we're gonna to practice. We're going to practice our response like this woman. We're going to practice our response to Jesus' invitation to him and the table. So I'm going to ask the, the team to gather the communion elements and kind of bring them forward and get ready. And we're just going to come, everybody. We're going to come. And in just a moment, we're going to sing these words. We're going to talk about chains breaking and fear bowing and freedom coming to people's lives. And this is the invitation that's for you. Regardless of the mess, regardless of the issues, regardless of the stuff of your life, this is Jesus' invitation to you. Come to me, sit with me at my table, eat of my body and find healing, drink of the cup of my blood and receive forgiveness for sin. This is what we're doing when we come to the Lord's table and find life. Chains broken in your life. When you come to the table, I don't want you just to come and go, well, this is this religious symbol that we do. No! You come with purpose. You come with passion. You come with faith. Chains are going to break in my life when I come to the table. My heart's going to be healed when I come to the table. My marriage is going to get fixed as I'm coming to the table. He's going to work on me so I can do a better job and take care of her. All of this is open and available for you and it happens when you come to the table. This woman, she came to the table with all of her stuff and notice what she did, everything opposite of Simon. She saw Jesus for who he really was and is the one who could set her free. She saw it, she believed it and it happened for her. She knew she had much to be forgiven and she was forgiven for all of it. And she was the one that practiced a radical hospitality to Jesus himself, where Simon missed it. Listen, this is the answer. How do we keep a tabled faith? We just respond like she did. Jesus is who he says he is. I've been forgiven much, and so I can live with a radical hospitality in my world. This is it. So I'm going to pray over these elements. We're going to go back into this song. We're going to sing it in faith. I want you to receive these elements as they pass by, but I want you to hold them, and we're going to take them all together when I, at the end of this song, all right? So Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for what you've done. We, in faith, receive it in Jesus' name. Come on, let's worship God as we receive this.
Come on, everybody. This is the reality in which you live. All of those words are available to you. What's your response today? What do you need to take care of? Just do it with him right now. Jesus, forgive me for being judgmental. Forgive me for being critical. Forgive me for not pursuing you with purpose and passion. Forgive me for relying on everybody else and not making it personal and trying to withhold myself from you. Forgive me for holding back. I want to give it all to you. Just take care of it right now. Just do it. Jesus, I love you. Thank you. And now I want us to come and receive his body broken for you and his blood shed for you. And I speak those words over you in faith in the name of Jesus. Chains fall. Fear bow in Jesus' name. Jesus, you change everything. Lives be healed in Jesus' name. Hope Come and fill every heart that's hurting in the name of Jesus. So Lord, we thank you for your body that was broken for us. And today we receive it in faith, believing that it's for me. Thank you for welcoming us to the table and allowing us the privilege of walking out and inviting others to it. Today, would you apply the work of the cross and your body to our lives in Jesus' name. Come on, let's receive that together. I receive it all in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood that was shed for us, for the forgiveness of our sins that cleanses us and washes us from everything we have done or ever will do. God, we run to you today and we ask that you would apply it to our lives and help us to live in the power of it and see others come to you. We love you and we thank you. Let's receive the cup together. Come on, just give him thanks and praise and honor and glory. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. We worship you. We adore you. We thank you for the sacrifice that you paid. We thank you that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. And I pray that every person in this room today would receive it, receive life, receive the healing that they're looking for, receive the hope that they've been struggling to recapture. In the name of Jesus, do this work in us. Come on, that's good, everybody. Why don't you just receive that right where you are? (laughs) Jesus, you change everything. Just another moment. Just receive it. Just receive it. What do you need? Just receive that. It's already been provided for you. You just ate and drank the provision. Fear, bow. Jesus, you change everything. Lives, marriages, relationships, minds, hearts be healed in Jesus. Hope rising in your heart. Hope rising in your heart again. 
hope is coming to you. And his name is Jesus. And he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the Messiah. He is everything. And he loves you. So Jesus, we receive all of it, and we want to keep receiving. Thank you for what you're doing, and thank you for what you've imparted into our lives today. We give you all the glory, all the honor, all the thanks, all the praise in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen, amen, amen. Ooh. I want to remind you of the five-minute party if you're kind of new around here. Come join us in the lobby right after this. We'd love to see you out there. Before we go, let's pray this prayer over one another, can we? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in peace, everybody, in Jesus' name.